0: Last Lord's Day morning, we considered Samson's birth, a divine calling for devotion. This morning, we will consider Samson's marriage, a sinful wedding used by God. I want to just quickly review the story that Brother Duane read for us, just to be sure this is all quite clear. We just saw together that um, Samson was attracted to a Philistine woman. And he became obsessed with marrying her and demanded of his dad and mom that he marry her. Told them, go make the arrangements. His parents tried to dissuade him from marrying a Philistine their protest and alternate suggestion fell on deaf ears. Samson had made up his mind, and there would be no turning back. Then we're told, parenthetically, that God had a sovereign purpose in all of this, and that he was going to use Samson, he was going to use his sinfulness to bring harm to the Philistines. Samson and his parents made a trip to Timnah to firm up the plans, and while they were walking, obviously separately, a roaring lion came out of a vineyard, and Samson was supernaturally empowered by the Holy Spirit to kill the lion. And then he caught up with his parents again and continued the trip to Timnah. On another occasion, Samson and his parents returned to Timnah, For the wedding and the seven day feast which accompanied it. And on the way, again, walking separately from his parents, Samson found a beehive and honey in the carcass of the lion that he had killed some weeks before. And he ate some of it, and then he caught up with mom and dad and offered some of it to them. But he never told them either that he had killed a lion or where he found the honey. When Samson and his parents got to Timnah, he prepared the seven-day feast. And part of that preparation was, for entertainment purposes, to present the 30 groomsmen that were given to him a riddle. And the riddle was very simple. He said, out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something to sweet. Comes something sweet. If you can figure it out, he said, I will give you all 30 changes, basically, of underwear and 30 changes of outerwear. It wasn't just uh, one set of clothing. So, they thought and thought, and after three days, they couldn't solve the riddle. And on the fourth day, they turned to Samson's wife and began to weasel out of her the solution to the riddle, the real answer to it. And they did it in a very brutal kind of way. They, They threatened her. They said, if you don't tell us the meaning of the riddle, the answer to it, we're going to burn you and your father and your father's house. Nice friends. These were friends that she and her parents provided to be Samson's groomsmen. They weren't willing to, to lose the wager. And so she begins to put pressure on her husband. They had not cons- consummated their marriage yet, but they were married. They had covenanted. And she turned to crying in emotion to manipulate the answer out of him. Dwayne just read for us. You can almost hear her pathetic sobs. She's crying all over him, perhaps her head on her shoulder, and saying, Samson, you, you don't really love me. You hate me. If you really loved me, Samson, really loved me, you wouldn't keep a secret from me. And he says, yeah, I haven't even told my parents. I know, but if you really loved me, and on the last day, he breaks down. And so she tells the riddle to the 30 groomsmen and they come to him and they give him the answer. And immediately he knows that they had pried the answer out of his wife and uses an interesting expression that if you had not plowed with my heifer, you wouldn't know the answer. And we, we laugh about that because that isn't exactly the way most husbands who want to refer to their wives, (laughs) but ladies take encouragement. He didn't say you were plowing with my bull. He didn't say, you were plowing with my cow or with my ox, my heifer. A heifer was a young calf that held promise. So it wasn't really a a derogative term on his part. But he became very, very angry at that point. And in order to keep his part of the deal, he went some 24 miles away to a city called Ascalon. Why he didn't stay there in Timna, we don't know. And he killed 30 Philistines stripped them of their clothing, outer and under, and brought it to the 30 groomsmen, threw it down, no doubt, and went off angry and disgusted and discouraged with his wife. He went back home. That's my simple review. Now, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to turn to application. I'm ready to start giving the lessons. And I have four. One of them pertains to romance and dating and marriage. One of them pertains to seeking parental counsel. One of them pertains to God's sovereignty. And the last one pertains to man's responsibility. So those are the lessons, the categories. Number one, concerning romance and dating and marriage. And I hope that all you young people will really, really listen up carefully because my burden and my heart is for you. My heart is especially for any young people who aspire toward marriage someday. And in a sense, secondly, my, my heart is for you parents who have such children. So I'll have a word for you as well. Now, apparently, Samson was attracted to the woman that he wanted to marry entirely upon the basis of her looks. The Bible doesn't tell us that she was beautiful, as it does about other men. But we have reason to believe that she at least seemed very beautiful to Samson. Our text says he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. He comes home to mom and dad and says, mom and dad, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Now get her for me as my wife. On the basis of seeing a woman? When his parents tried to dissuade him from marrying outside of the faith, which of course was unbiblical, very clearly taught in the, uh, the Pentateuch, in the first five books, especially in Exodus and also in Deuteronomy, having tried to dissuade him, his response was, Get her for me! for she is right in my eyes. Later, when he and his parents went down to Timnah to begin to make arrangements, the text says he talked with the woman and she was right in Samson's eyes. Saw, saw, eyes, eyes. In fact, later he found out she didn't have She didn't possess either faith or character. For when she was threatened by the 30 Philistine groomsmen, instead of praying, instead of trusting the Lord, instead of immediately communicating with her new husband and being completely transparent and open with him, to let him know what was going on, she was moved by fear. And she started to manipulate him emotionally. Be careful, wives, about the emotional, manipulative power you may have and sometimes exercise over your husbands. But I want to say something to you young people, to the guys and the girls. Listen to me. Physical attraction is often inevitable. It's almost always inevitable. It's not wrong in and of itself. God made us to be attracted to the opposite sex. But as soon as you acknowledge in your mind, I'm very attracted to her, I'm very attracted to him. As soon as you start thinking in your heart or maybe saying to your friends, wow, she is drop dead gorgeous. Wow, he is the bomb. (laughs) tall, dark, and handsome, well-built, beautiful eyes, beautiful facial features, beautiful hair, humorous, charming, and so forth. As soon as you start thinking that way, young people, such observations need to be quickly set aside, and they need to be placed in third, fourth, or fifth place, not first the Bible says charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised, Proverbs 31. There's nothing particularly sexual about that statement in terms of gender. It's also true with regard to men. We could read it this way. Charm is deceitful and handsomeness is vain, and a man, but a man who fears the Lord is to be praised. And so I want to say to you young people, Look first and foremost for faith. Look first or secondly for character and virtue. Look for a person who loves God and loves his word and loves his church. Look for a person, if he's a man who has leadership, Look for a person, man or woman, who is humble and kind and diligent and tender and thoughtful and communicative. Don't be caught up with looks. Don't be caught up with physical attraction. Because I promise you, I promise you, after your honeymoon and about 365 times of being intimate, you're going to wake up some morning and you're going to realize. That you're married to a person and not a body. A person with or without faith. A person with or without character. And if you have 50 years of marriage, which is quite reasonable, you have another 17,885 days to either enjoy companionship with that person Or to be miserable. If you're not married to a fellow believer with character. And if you aren't enjoying companionship, you won't even care about sex. And you know what will happen? Oh, you'll care about it. You just won't care about it with your spouse. You'll suddenly become vulnerable. To an affair. And so, young people, as your pastor, I'm pleading with you. I'm pleading with you. Take time. And I know the thing that frustrates me about this part of my sermon, and I'm just sharing this with you, young people and your parents, is that the nature of folly, the nature of the lack of wisdom, is that these kinds of pleas don't usually do much good unless the Holy Spirit, in some powerful way, applies it to your heart. I'm talking to fools. Unless God is helping you, listen to me, young people. Take time, please, I beg you. Take time to know the person you're interested in. Take your time. And don't start too early. And say, when is too early? Before you're ready to be married? Yeah. So that means high school is too early. Don't start falling in love with that guy or that girl when you're in high school. Very, very few times are young people able to be attracted to the opposite sex that early and sustain the relationship until they are ready to be married without falling into serious sin. Very few times. It's almost impossible. I'm not going to say it's impossible. It's almost impossible. Don't start... Getting involved with romance your first year of college, unless you're convinced you're ready to be married. Maybe you are. That's a possibility. It's not very likely. Don't start getting involved with romance until you're ready for marriage. It's okay to be attracted. God made you to be attracted. It's okay for you young girls to see young guys and say, he is so hot, if that's the word you want to use, and if you're not using it in a sexual way. He is so good looking. He is so cool. She is so beautiful. She's so attractive. It's okay to see that and to realize that and to feel that. But that's all the further it should go. That's when you have to say, but... This is not the time for me to get romantic. This is not the time for me to fall in love. This is not the time for me to begin a relationship. I'm nowhere near ready to be married. I'm not saying that's what happened to Samson, although Samson was probably about 20. He was was old enough to be married. I'm just diverting a little bit and making a very important point. Physical attraction and charm are especially powerful in the lives of young people. And so you have to restrain yourself, and you need to be wise. I wonder if any of you young people are going to remember this sermon. I wonder how many of you are going to end up, if I should live long enough, at my kitchen table, like a young man who used to be a part of our church ended up just about a week ago, pouring out his guts to me and saying, I don't get along with my wife. We practically hate each other, and I have no sexual interest in her. I wonder how many of you young people are going to remember this. I pray and I hope with all of my heart that this won't be one of those things. I remember when my mom and dad talked to me about this. I thought they were stupid. I remember when my old pastor talked to me about this. I thought he was old bogey. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <What>? <laughs> he doesn't live in our world. He has no idea. He's crazy. Young people, I beg you, please, please, just just while you're sitting there, say, God, help me to take this to heart. Help me to take this to heart. And don't let me be a fool. And mom and dad, did I say a word to you about this? Please don't let your children start to have romance too early. Please. Please be strong enough. Please be parents. Man up, Dad. Get the guts to look your daughter in the eye and say, no, no, you're not going to have a relationship. No, you're not going to talk on the phone. No, you're not going to Facebook him. No, you're not going to go to that thing with him. No, it's too early. No, I can tell that you're interested in him. Too early for romance, honey. I love you. I'm not letting it happen. And mom, of course, needs to join dad in that regard. Man up. And don't, like your kids, succumb to fear. Well, I'm afraid that she might not find a really good husband, and he seems like a pretty neat guy, and vice versa. With your sons, find the guts to intervene if necessary. Of course, what I'm really recommending is leading your children in such a way that you don't need to intervene. But if you have to intervene, please, Mom and Dad, intervene. And say, we were foolish in letting this happen. We're not going to let it happen any longer. Better late than never. Sorry, it's over. Maybe God will let it happen later. That's fine. We'd be happy if it was his will, but not now. <laughs> That's what I wanted to say to young, young people. And to your parents. Number two, young people, when that time comes, I want you to do twenty things. Just twenty. <laughs> but they're simple. Listen, here they are. Here's the first ten. Talk, 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 and talk to your parents. Okay? guess what the next 10 are listen 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 and listen to your parents swallow your pride and your sense of independence and your sense of inflated wisdom and remember that they are the parents, and you are the child. They have experience. They have wisdom. They have been where you are right now. Some of the features are a little different, but that's all. They're just superficial. They have been where you are. You have not been where they have been. And don't think you have more wisdom than they do. This is God's method for happiness. Now, there are some circumstances when young people do not take the counsel of their parents, particularly if their parents are not Christians and they're giving you ungodly counsel. But those are the rare exceptions. Young people, listen to your parents. Talk to them. Be deeply concerned about their perspective. That's what Samson didn't do. Samson comes home and says, I saw a woman in Timnah, and I'm going to marry her. And surely there were more extended discussions than this summary. Surely his parents said something like this, Son, what do you know about her beliefs? Is she a proselyte? Has Has she repented of the godless religion of the Philistines and become a believer in Jehovah? Does she have character? Is she a woman of the word? What do you know about her son? Is she really going to be a helper suitable to you? Son, do you know the misery that you may bring into your life in marrying an ungodly woman just because she's the bomb? But he wouldn't listen to his parents, did he? Did he listen to his parents? No, he said, get her for me. Thanks for your advice. Not helpful. Go get her. That's exactly what he did. He says, I've made up my mind. I don't need any more wisdom. I'm getting married. The only thing you have more than your parents have, young people, is youth. And maybe, probably you have more hormones than they have. That's about it. That's about it. Do you kids know how much marriage counseling I have done? This is going to sound, it could sound wrong, but please attribute to me a pure motive. I think it's fair and safe to say I've done more marriage counseling than anybody in this room or the room behind me. Partly because of how long I've been pastoring. Partly also because for 20 years, I was the chief counselor of a ministry here in Owensboro called Owensboro Christian Counseling Service, where there are no hopeless problems. Counsel based on the Word of God. I have counseled hundreds and hundreds of couples outside of our church, let alone all the counseling within the church. Do you know how many times I've seen the struggles that couples have because they didn't listen to their parents? Because they were driven by attraction and infatuation and lust? You have no idea. It's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking to see it. And so I speak to you out of experience. And I beg you, talk to your parents. Listen to your parents. Is it really that hard to go to mom and say, mom, there's a guy that I think is really cute. I'm attracted to him. But I shouldn't be having a relationship with him, should I? He wants me to go out with him. Mom, I'm doing the right thing, aren't I? Go to your dad. Talk to your parents and listen to him. And that brings me, of course, to you as parents. And I just want to say again, mom and dad. Cultivate a communicative relationship with your kids from their youth. Cultivate it. Don't wait until they start talking about marriage to get involved. Cultivate it. Talk about these things so that there's a natural back-and-forth dialogue about these things, and it's not terribly awkward for them to talk to you or for you to talk to them. Build into them the biblical principles that should guide them and build that relationship which makes it natural and open for you to talk together. I move to my third point. What is God himself up to in the life and the judgeship of Samson? I uh, I summarized this a while ago by the word sovereignty. But actually, before I come to that, could I just share a quote that I know I forgot and I think it's so good. And I'm back now for just a moment. I'm going back to young people moving forward in a romantic relationship based on looks, appearance, attraction, infatuation. Charm. Guys are charming to girls. Girls are charming to guys. I'm going back to that for just one second, young people. This is what an old commentator said, and I I just modernized the words a little bit. He said, the person who is guided in his choice or her choice as to who they will marry only by their eyes, and I would add, or hormones, And only by infatuation must afterwards thank themselves if they wake up someday in their marriage and find a Philistine in their arms. It'll be your fault. And Thomas Scott, one of my favorite commentators, put it like this. He said, in contracting marriage, the senses are dangerous counselors. Beauty and wit are very doubtful recommendations. And wisdom, piety, and holiness ought principally to be regarded. Next to the Word of God, the concurrence and the concurrence of the concurrence of parents is generally necessary to render that relationship honorable and comfortable. So he put it a little more archaically. But if any of you wake up someday as professed Christians and find out that you're married to a Philistine It won't be because you didn't hear this sermon, and it won't be because mom and dad have not pleaded with you and tried to impart to you wisdom. What you may discover is that the Philistine to whom you're married is also married to a Philistine. You may not be truly converted. Now quickly, I want to come to this matter of God's sovereignty. What is God up to? Did you notice verse 4? Just notice again, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he that is uh, the Lord, not, not Samson, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. What is God up to in the life and judgeship of Samson? Well, remember my advice last week with regard to Samson. Don't get fixated on Samson in the book of Judges. In fact, don't get fixated on any of the judges in the book of Judges. Chapters 13 through 14 are not primarily about Samson. If you were here last week and you remember, you know who they're primarily about. They're primarily about God. Now, where we can... And where it's reasonable, we will look for Christ, especially seeing him by way of contrast. But we're not to see a type of Christ in everything that comes along in the life of Samson. People have gotten carried away with this kind of thing. They say, well, he had a miraculous birth, Samson did, and so did our Savior, and he was a Nazarite. Well, Jesus wasn't a Nazarite, but he certainly was a man who was devoted to holiness, perfect holiness, holiness. Samson did battle with a lion. Doesn't the Bible say that the devil is a roaring lion? And Jesus battled with a roaring lion and came out the victor. And and Samson was bound and delivered over to the enemy. Wasn't our Savior bound and delivered over to the enemy? And Samson offered himself as a sacrifice in death, in the destruction of the temple and of the enemies of God. Okay, okay, there's some parallels But to say that those things were designed for sure to be types of Christ, I'm not prepared to say that. But I am willing to see parallels, and I am willing to see contrast. So when we come to this, and we have to ask ourselves, what is God up to in this statement? What we really see is that Samson's life was not so much a type of Christ as it was a type of the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was a mixed bag of faith and unbelief. A mixed bag of obedience and disobedience. And Samson was just like them. And God used that faulty, weak believer, and he was a true believer, to help begin to deliver Israel. His life and his ministry are especially about God's sovereignty and God's grace. God's providence brought him into existence to do what he did. And he was, if you remember the text, chapter 13 and verse 5, just notice the last words of the fifth verse of chapter 13. This is what mom was told by the angel of the Lord, who was Christ. He said to her, Manoah's wife, he, Samson, shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. That's what this is about. This is about God beginning to deliver Israel from the Philistines. God is going to prepare a Savior out of the nation of Israel, which needed to be preserved. And God raises up judges to preserve the nation because he's got an end in mind. He's got a Savior coming. And Samson is his instrument. That's what it's about. That's what it's primarily about. So we see. The providence of God. We see the purpose of God. We see God even preparing Samson. Why did that lion experience happen? I don't know all of the reasons, but I'm pretty sure of one. Samson needed to have an experience, a special divine enablement to build his trust in God. And he was a man of faith. Hard sometimes to... You know, when we see his life. But remember, those were incidences. He judged Israel for 20 years. The Bible tells us he was a man of faith. He was included in the hall of faith. In Hebrews 11, verse 32, we have to say he was a man of faith. God gave him that faith, and God strengthened that faith, and God was preparing him to do greater things. The first thing he does is kill a lion by supernatural enablement. The next thing he does as we saw in our text today is he kills 30 Philistines by supernatural enablement. And he goes on to greater deliverances. God is preparing his man to do his job. He's beginning to deliver Israel. That's the sovereignty of God in verse 4. Now let me come to my last category and that is man's responsibility. God is sovereign, and man is responsible, absolutely responsible. Now, this is a mystery, we will grant you, but it is true nonetheless. God is absolutely sovereign, we are absolutely responsible, but what we have to focus on is our responsibility. It is our responsibility to concentrate on our responsibility. We are not to be oblivious or mindless or ignorant about the sovereignty of God. We love the sovereignty of God. We find great comfort in the sovereignty of God. But at the end of the day, I'm responsible for me. And I'm responsible to obey this God and to do his will. I want to read for you about this mystery in our confession in chapter 3. We have a statement about the decree of God. It says, God has decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his will, freely and unchangeable, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Did you hear that? God has decreed all things, all things, all things whatsoever comes to pass. Yet, so as thereby is God neither the author of sin nor has fellowship with any therein. Nor is violence offered to the will of the creature. And you say, I don't understand that entirely. And I say, I don't either. I don't have to. I just have to embrace it because it's the truth of God's word. And if we could understand all these mysteries, we wouldn't need a Bible, and we wouldn't need a God to call upon. But then when we come over just two chapters later in chapter 5 concerning divine providence, listen to this. The almighty power, unsearchable wisdom... And infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that he that his determinate counsel extends itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions, both of angels and men, and that not by bare permission, which also he most wisely and powerfully bounds and otherwise orders and governs in a in a manifold dispensation to his most holy ends. Yet so as the sinfulness of their acts proceeds only from the creatures and not from God, who being most holy and righteous, neither is nor can be the author author or approver of sin. And you say, I don't understand that entirely. I said, I don't either. But it's true. God is absolutely sovereign. Man is absolutely responsible. Somehow, in some way, God was orchestrating all of these circumstances, calling Samson to become a deliverer. And by his decree, Samson was to marry the, the Philistine from Timnah, even though he, Samson, violated the revealed will of God. And the danger in this is for us to so appreciate and embrace the sovereignty of God as to not understand and embrace the responsibility of man. I say, well, then Samson wasn't really responsible, was he? It was all of God. So it really didn't hurt that he violated Ex- Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy 7, did it? Yes, it did. Because Samson is responsible for Samson and God is responsible for God. And and what the writers to our confession have said to us in language that needs to be read over and over and over and over, because I don't think there's a better way to put it. God does this in a way that keeps him not the author of sin and still leaves man totally responsible for his own sinfulness. This is in a different category, but for example, if a spouse lives in such a way as to make his or her spouse vulnerable to an affair, listen to me carefully, that spouse who makes his or her spouse vulnerable is responsible for making his or her spouse vulnerable. Everybody with me so far? Now listen, but... If that other spouse who was made vulnerable enters into any form of sin with another person, that person is responsible before God for their sin. Now, that's on the human level. But in a different kind of way, whatever God has ordained is good and right and pure and holy and without sin. Somehow it embraces the totality of human experience. But we are responsible for our actions and our sin, and we can never say either the devil made me do it or God made me do it because it was my own sinful heart that did it, and I'm accountable before God. We must embrace that, dear people. So when I say to you that what's going on here, God's sovereign will is being worked out, and Samson's being a sinner, why did I subtitle this message? Samson's marriage, a wedding, a sinful wedding used by God. So we are responsible, and we are responsible to be a holy people. I'm going to conclude by saying this. You know what, dear people? God is calling us to be Nazarites, in a way. a Nazarite was just a person who, for a period of time, was wholly devoted to God. And in a sense, that person symbolized what all Christians are to be at all times. We are to be a holy people. God has set us aside for the purpose of being holy. And we need to see our lives from that perspective. God redeemed us to be holy. God has made us a kingdom and priests. He has made us to be a holy nation. And that's why his word comes to us again and again and calls us to repent of our sins and to turn and to be like our savior. That's why the Bible says, don't love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's why the Bible comes to us and says, don't be conformed to the world. The Bible says to us that we are to say no to unrighteousness. That we are to strive for conformity to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we are to be holy. We live in Babylon. But Babylon must not live in us. We are to be a godly people. So many texts of Scripture that teach this. The gospel calls us to holiness of life. But the gospel also motivates us to holiness of life by changing us. And the gospel enables us to be holy by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It is true that Christ has paid for all of our sins, but there's not a single sin in any of our lives that God tolerates. Not a one. God will not be satisfied until every single one of us are entirely like our Savior. He is conforming us to his moral image. That is a process. But, dear ones, the process has begun. We call it sanctification. So I say to you and I say to myself, let's roll up our sleeves. We're not going to put our trust in our growth and progress and sanctification. We put our trust in the perfect righteousness of Christ. But we can't put our trust in the perfect righteousness of Christ and not desire to be like him. And so we should not be like Samson. Samson didn't live up to who he was called to be. He was called to be a Nazarite. And if we could have talked to him, we'd have said, Samson, would you just be who you are? And I hope he wouldn't say, who am I? I'd say, you're a Nazarite. And all those outward things are just symbols of what you are to be inwardly. Dear ones, we are Nazarites. We are called to be holy to the extent that we fail, and we fail miserably repeatedly. We fall back on the righteousness of our Savior, and we don't live in continual guilt and fear. But we do strive to be like him. We want to deal with sin in our lives. And our greatest longing is to be like him. And it's certainly going to happen because the gospel has absolutely guaranteed it. So my word to you, dear people, is this. When we come to Samson and we come away from chapter 14, we just have to say, I I know what this is about. This is about a redeeming God who sent a Savior, small s." who reminded the nation of Israel and all who read about the story that we need a greater Savior. We need a greater Savior. And we have one. And he gives us the ability to be what we are. And so, let's be holy for the glory of God. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the life of Samson. Again, help us to learn from him. Uh, Lord, help us to see the good things in this life, but help us especially to see what you were doing in redemptive history. And help us to realize that you have called us to be a holy nation made up of holy citizens who are in the process of becoming like their holy Savior. Lord, please help the young people. You know that our hearts as parents and my heart as pastor are burdened for them. They're foolish, Lord. They're driven by their hormones. They're driven by the world. They're driven by their lust. They're driven sometimes just by innocent foolishness. Please help them to see how important it is that they wait for you, that they look for faith, that they look for virtue and character, that they talk to their parents, that they trust you, for who their life's mate should be. Now bless us through this day and help us to please you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.